Tonight, we are continuing our series called The Immediate Jesus, where we've been looking at the person and then the work and the ministry of Jesus through the lens of the Gospel of Mark. And tonight, I want to zero in on one particular aspect of the Gospel of Mark. We've, we've talked about a number of things. We've talked about just kind of a general overview of the book. We've talked about Jesus' public ministry, his, his private uh, re, uh, relationships, things like that. But tonight I want to I want to talk about his relationships. So I want to take a little bit different tack uh, about it. I want to talk tonight about Jesus's closest friends and how they related to him. Jesus's closest relationships, not not just the private, intimate moments that he may have had with individuals, or certainly not his public ministry, but the, those relationships that Jesus actually cultivated during his time on on Earth and. Because I, I feel like they take on a completely different feel than any other, any other, those other types of relationships that he had. Uh, to begin with, I want, I want to just tell a little story I heard Dr. Mark Rutland tell one time. He told a story about an uh, incident from his childhood. His family moved around quite a bit. And there was uh, a period of time when he was a young child uh, that they lived in Key West, Florida. And uh, he was going there as just a young boy. And he... Uh, was going to a small school there. And one day they were, a group of them were playing softball at the school and somebody hit the ball and it went out into the street and then, and, and then across the road. And so he was out there. So he just, he dashed out in, into the road and across the road and, and to get the ball. And, and when he got there, there was this very odd looking uh, man with a beard accompanied by a lady with a big floppy hat. Well, the man just picked up the softball and handed it to him. He, they, they chatted for a moment or two, and, you know, the, the, the man was very nice, and he just said, you know, all the boys are waiting for the ball to get back there, but the man's like, what's your name? And Dr. Rutland told him his name, and he said, my name's Mark. And, well, he said, well, here's your ball. And as, as Dr. Rutland took the ball and started to uh, walk away with the ball, he, he said to him, to, he said, what do you want to be when you grow up? And Dr. Rutland said, I want to write books. And when, when he said that, the lady who was standing there just burst out laughing. I mean, she laughed and laughed and laughed. And Dr. Rutland thought they were laughing at him. So, you know, he, he, he returned to the softball game just a bit wounded. Well, that evening, he went to, with his mother to the grocery store in downtown Key West. And while they're there, he saw the funny-looking bearded man and the lady with the big floppy hat was there with him. And he had told his mother about the incident and he said to her, That's, those are the people. And well, just about that moment, this, this man recognized Dr. Rutland and he come, came over to them and said, it's, it's, it's Mark, isn't it? And he said, yes. And then the man turned his attention to Dr. Rutland's mother and, and he said, your, your, boy is, your little boy is just charming. He said, he said to us that he wants to write books and my friend here laughed. And I think maybe we embarrassed him, but, but we weren't laughing at him. And the man said, I'd like to explain to you why we were laughing. And he looked at his mom, at Dr. Rutherford's mom, and he said, my jovial friend here is Tallulah Bankhead, and my name is Tennessee Williams. And if you don't know, that's a very famous playwright. And so that was why it was funny to them. That the, the reason they were laughing was that uh, they thought how humorous it was that out, out of all the elementary school children in Key West, that this one little boy said to Tennessee Williams that he wanted to write books. So, you know, moments like that 
perhaps give you an insight into personalities of tremendous celebrity in, in a way that's not afforded to us in any other perspective. And so, you know, I, I think about Jesus and those who are close to him. I, I wonder what little treasures of remembrances Jesus' closest friends had of Jesus, even, even years after his life here on earth. You know, I wonder if Mary, the sister of Lazarus, Lazarus uh, uh, sat with friends and they said, what was he like? What was he like? And I, I don't suppose that she told them about public healings or I don't think she said, told them about any of the great sermons he preached because every, everybody had already heard those. Those have been recorded. They've read about those things. But I, I think she probably said, well, let me, let me tell you about one time as we sat down to eat in my house, what he did. When Peter, when he shared with Mark the, for the preparation of writing the gospel that we call the gospel of Mark, what, what did he say about his up-close personal relationship with, with the most controversial figure of his generation and the most powerful figure of, of all history. Am I on? Does it? Okay. All right. Just want to make sure. Just usually I can hear it out of the speaker and I, I can't hear anything but me. So that's why I just want to make sure. I want to make sure because if I'm not on here, then they're not getting it on the live stream. So I just want to make sure. Uh, so anyway, I want you to turn to Mark chapter three, verse 13. This is what it says. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boan, Bo, excuse me, Boaner, Boanerges, which is that is son of sons of thunder. Now, if you're if you're taking notes tonight, yes. Can you tur try turning me up on the channel and see? Because I've got signal here. Test. Test one two. Test one two. So you well. Uh, Okay, but I am on the live stream. Okay, good. That's, that's what matters. Everybody here can hear me. So I think we're good. We'll figure out the mains later. Okay, if you're taking notes tonight, I'm going to talk about five people. Peter, James, John, Mary Magdalene, and then Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. And what can we learn from those close relationships? Now, the first thing you might ask is, is why would I choose the, these particular five people? Well, I just want to say the Gospel of Mark is not an account of intimate relationships. And there are actually very few windows into Jesus's closest relationships in the Gospel of Mark. It's, it's a book about public ministry and, and, and authority and the establishment of a kingdom. It's, it's very... Romanesque, it's, a, it's an abbreviated account of a huge historical incident. It, it is the briefest, it's, it's the most powerful, it's the punchiest, if you will, of the gospel accounts. It just sort of makes the punch and then retreats and makes you deal with it afterwards. However, the, those moments when he does give us insights into Jesus' closest relationships, 
because they are so precious and rare in the book of Mark, they are all the more valuable. I mean, even, even with Peter, Peter, who was arguably Jesus's closest friend, even with him, there are less than a dozen, about 10 by my reckoning, there are less than a dozen real insights into private moments with Peter. The first is really the passage that we just read in Mark 3.16, where Simon is, is given the name of Peter. What, what does that tell us? First of all, it tells us, um, <laughs> strangely enough, it tells us that Jesus felt that he had the authority to rename his friends. <laughs> you know, that's not something that most of us would claim, right? Second thing, it tells us that Jesus had a fondness for his closest friends. Mark reports that, that Jesus renamed Simon as Peter. Now, we know from other Gospels that that actual renaming didn't take place until the great confession of Jesus, or excuse me, great confession of, confession of Peter when Jesus asked the disciples who they thought he was. But, but what he really did in that moment, in this situation, what he really did was he, he gave him a nickname. That, that's what he did. So he called, he called him Peter which is translated as a small rock or a stone. And I think that when somebody calls you by nickname, unless it's an insult, I had some of those. When I was in grade school, you know, I had kids called me beaver because I had an overbite. That was not one that was very endearing to me. And if you call me beaver, it better be pastor beaver. That's all I can say. Um, but, uh, but, you know, unless it's something like that, I think when somebody calls you a nickname, it, it sort of has a bonding and a binding quality. And Jesus uses that with Peter, and he uses it with James and John. We'll get to them in a little bit. But you know, it also tells us that Jesus' relationships changed people. Because his renaming of Peter was really more about trying to give a reflection of the person that Peter was going to become. And Jesus, Jesus saw Peter differently than the way everybody else saw Peter. He just saw him in another light and he said, you know, I just don't, I just don't see you like that. I see you more like this. And then the, the nickname stuck. All right. So, so turn to chapter five, verse 37. This is what it says. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Now by that, we see that Jesus selectively chose moments to establish deeper intimacy with a chosen group. There, there, there were times when he just simply didn't allow the crowd in. There were times when, when he wanted to invest himself up close and impersonal in the lives of just a select few people. Now, now that tells me a couple of things about Jesus. First of all, it tells me that Jesus was already thinking beyond the limitations of his own personal ministry. I mean, think about it. All the people that he could heal in the, when he was here in the flesh on earth, during his ministry on earth, they were, that was, they were not going to equal the lives that would be impacted by those in whom he was investing his life. He knew that Peter was going to teach Mark, who was going to write the, the gospel of Mark, and, and that Peter was going to himself write two epistles, the two epistles of Peter. And that he knew that Peter was going to preach more sermons in his lifetime than he was going to preach. Uh, he knew that, Jesus, that Peter was going to help establish the church. He knew all of that. So he, he said that it was more important in those times that he spend some time with Peter up close and invest in him personally. So, so we know that Jesus 
thought beyond the limitations of his own ministry. I'll tell you something else it tells us, though. We don't often think of Jesus in this light, but it tells us that Jesus needed time alone with his friends. He, he needed, there were times when Jesus just needed to kick his sandals off and relax with some people with whom he didn't have to act like Jesus. I know that sounds funny. Sounds goofy to say it like that, but, but, uh, but, but he didn't have to worry about any of the other things or what other, anybody else thought. He could just sit there and be himself. And, and I think he was always himself, but he, he could tell them things that he couldn't tell everybody else. We, we see that all throughout Scripture. And, you know, I mean, think about it. Re read, read the Gospel of Luke, for example, and you'll, when you read it, you notice the, the, the seething, bubbling mass of humanity that is constantly pulling on Jesus. At one point in Luke, in one particular chapter, it says twice that Jesus descended into the multitude and that power went out from him so that all who touched him were healed. Now, now you, you imagine walking into a multitude of a third world crowd where multitudes of people are sick or they're blind or they have, you know, malaria or some other sickness, some other disease. And all of a sudden it becomes obvious to everybody that's there that, that everybody who touches one specific human being is getting healed. C can you imagine that? Can you imagine the response to that? It's a wonder that they didn't tear him limb from limb, just trying to get to him, just trying to touch him. It's, and you add that Jesus, on top of that, he constantly had to weigh every word spoken to him by the scribes and the Pharisees because they were constantly trying to trip him up, constantly trying to get him to say something wrong. And he knew that he could be stoned to death if he answered wrongly there. There are times when he had to measure out his words. There are times when he had to, has to decide how to handle these delicate situations, how to answer these questions. He, he knows that his answers, on top of that, he knows his answers are going to be recorded in public for all eternity. He, he said, and so with all of this going on around him, it's no wonder that he had these times where he said, nobody can come in today except Peter, James, and John. Now, now, I don't know, maybe that doesn't comfort you, but it actually does comfort me. I'll tell you something, it, it, it means to us that there is nothing wrong with needing to have those times of intimacy away with just a few people. There's nothing wrong with that. Do not be, ever be ashamed of needing time alone with a friend or with a small group of friends with whom you can be utterly yourself. You need that. Jesus needed that. And if Jesus needed that, you certainly need that. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a suggestion here. You can take it for whatever it's worth. I'd, I'd like to urge you that the more successful you become in your life, you need a few friends that are absolutely unimpressed with you. You know what I'm saying? You need a few people around you who can joke with you, talk with you, be with you up close and they don't care what you've done or how successful you are or how much money you've got or what you've accomplished, who just, they, they just know you and they love you. You need that. And J Jesus evidently, evidently sensed that need in himself. Now turn to chapter 8, and I need to move a, a wee bit faster. Mark chapter 8, verses 29 through 33 says this, And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? 
Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. In other words, there's no question. He just flat out said, this is going to happen. And Peter took him aside. And so now he's alone with Jesus and, and he began to rebuke him, which always kind of makes me chuckle a little bit. You know, the, the, the arrogance, the... Uh, that, that Peter might have, you know, to say, hey, I'm going to teach, take this great teacher that nobody, he's doing things nobody's ever seen. He's teaching things nobody ever heard. I'm going to pull him aside and rebuke him. But it says he, and he began to rebuke him. There, verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now I want you to, I want you to look at the first part of verse 33 again. It's, a, it's really kind of a unique look at this passage. Maybe you haven't seen this, maybe you haven't thought of it like this. It says, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Now, it doesn't mean that he's standing there with all the disciples, but, but, but get the picture, get the scene in your mind. Jesus is with the 12. He says, whom, does, whom, do, whom do men say that I am? And, and they say, well, they say, some say this one, some say that one, this one, that one, all these things. And then he says, whom, whom do you say that I am? And Peter answers with the great revelation from God, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus begins to talk to them. Okay, yes, yes, that, that is true, he says, but I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be despised. The chief priests are going to judge me. The scribes and the Pharisees are going to turn against me. I'll be judged. I'll be handed over to the Gentiles and the Romans are going to crucify me. I'm going to be whipped. He said, now listen, you're going to see horrible, horrible things. So brace yourself. And then Peter just sort of puts his arm around Jesus and gently guides him away from the rest of the group. And he says, Jesus, don't, don't talk like that. No, nobody needs to hear things like that. I mean, don't talk about pain and suffering and crucifixion and all this stuff. Just, just don't talk like that. And then, then Jesus, picture it like this. He has his back to his disciples and Peter is standing next to him, telling him not to say these things, appealing to his flesh, in frank, frankly. And it says that Jesus turned and looked at the disciples who were still over by the campfire. Why? Well, maybe it was because he needed to remind himself of his mission. His mission was not to be liked. His mission was to be killed for our sins. And he looked on his disciples and turns back to Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. In other words, what he says is, you and your desire to comfort me in the flesh right now is standing between them and heaven. If I do what you say, they're all going to hell. And he looks at his disciples to remind himself of that. Now, I think that's a rare insight into a moment of deep intimacy between Jesus and and one of his closest friends, uh, perhaps his closest friend, I think you could, you could probably justify saying that Peter was his closest friend. But what, is, what does that tell us? Well, it tells us three things about Jesus and his closest relationships. One is that this story tells us that Jesus encouraged faith. Whom do you say that I am? And he, he asked Peter 
to, to just get out on a limb at the point of his faith. It's, it's like he's saying, come on, say it, Peter. I know it's in there. I know, you, I know you got this. I know you see this. I know you understand this. Let's hear your boldest declaration of faith. Come on, Peter, you can do it. So I think he encouraged faith. Second, Jesus encouraged intimacy. That, it, that, it, that is to say that he drew them aside and he, he discussed with his disciples the deepest parts of his life, the most uh, frightening, the, 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 the deepest parts of his future, the scariest things that he's going to walk through. And he does that with his closest friends. He didn't try to hide anything. He was open with them. But it also, you know what else it tells me in this interaction with Peter? tells me that Jesus is not playing games in his relationships. Anybody ever known anybody that plays games in your in friendships? But it shows us that Jesus was serious about these relationships. You know, in, in the early stages of cultivating a friendship, somebody that you really don't know all that well, they may say to you, and I'm just going to use a very odd statement, but it'll help illustrate this, but they'll, they, you don't know them very well, and they say to you, you know, I just don't like blue jackets. And you say, yeah, yeah, that, that, that's great, that's good. I, I, or no, actually, I'm, they say, I like blue jackets. And so you say, yeah, that's good. I, I like blue jackets too. And, and you know, at that moment, that's all he wants from you, just a word back, because there's no depth of relationship there. But however, after you know somebody deeply and personally for a while, if they say to you, you know, I like blue jackets, and and then you, in that relationship, feel that somehow you have to pacify them in order to keep peace. Uh, and to, you have to respond to them to say, well, I like blue jackets too, to keep peace. Well, a relationship like that is in bondage. That is, that is not friendship. You're just sort of feeding off of one another, looking for affirmation to say, I want you to, to agree with me on everything I say. Ever, ever known anybody like that? I've known a few people like that. Then you come across another friend who says, man, I, I hate blue jackets. I, I just hate blue blazers. I, I hate, I've seen blue blazers till I'm sick of them. I just hate blue jackets. And you say, you know, you know, I, I hate blue jackets too. Well, you know what? You're not really able to truly be friend to either one of those people because in that situation, you're in bondage to the friendship. You're you're, you, you value the friendship more than you value honesty. Can I tell you this? I'm going to say something. This is not part of the lesson, but I believe that in the American church today, um, how many of you know that we, we have idols today? You know, we, we talk about idol worship and people think about, you know, little statues or whatever, but we have idols in the American church as well, in the American world. And I think one of the idols that we struggle with in the American church is the idol of friendship. What I mean by that is we are so afraid of hurting a friendship that we're afraid to speak truth. You, you, you see what I'm saying? That, and the truth is, if it's truly a friendship, I, let me put it like this. We need to cultivate relationships that are deep enough to sustain conflict. If we don't do that, then we don't really have any friends like what Jesus is talking about here, the kind of friends that he had. Uh, you don't have any close friends. If you have to 
just not ever say what you really think around somebody, that person, you have not developed a friendship with them. That's just, that's just a, a relationship where, you know, maybe you're just acquaintances, you're just, you're friends on a very uh, surface level, whatever, but you're just really, you know, either you or they just want that relationship just so that uh, they can they have somebody to agree with them on everything they say. And, and listen, here's the truth. I have never agreed with everybody on everything they say. I've never agreed with anybody, not even one person, on everything they say. You know, I'm, I mean, isn't that true in, for you? I mean, I, I agree with my wife on, on, on almost everything. But, but there are some times when we have disagreements. And that is the most unified relationship that I have in my life. But we have a deep enough relationship that, that we're not tossing the, uh, in, in the hat into the ring. That's not the right word. I'm mixing my metaphors. Toss the towel in the ring, I guess. But you can toss a hat in the ring too if you want. I don't know. You toss something. But, uh, but, but we're, not, you know, we're not just giving up and saying, oh, this relationship is doomed just because we have a disagreement. No, because we value the actual relationship more than whatever that issue is. And, and, and because we have this bondage to this idol of friendship, sometimes, sometimes that's what keeps us from actually telling a friend about Jesus. Because we're afraid we're going to offend them and so don't we, we don't tell them about the Savior, the lover of their soul. So anyway, just throw that in extra. Uh, listen, you're, you, you know, uh, uh, that, that whole thing, you don't see that in Jesus at all. Je Jesus draws Peter into the deepest moment of spiritual and personal intimacy that they will ever share. Who, who am I? Come, come on, talk to me, tell me. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, the Lord has revealed this to you. Now let me tell you about what's going to happen. I'm going to reveal things to you that nobody else has ever heard. And then Peter says, Lord, don't, don't talk like this. Don't say that. I rebuke that, Jesus. Don't, don't even talk like that. And you know, and Jesus could have been like a lot of us. We could have said, well, I sure appreciate that, Peter. Thank you for, for that. I, I'm just, I know you really love me. I know you really love me. But instead... Instead, what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. I don't think Jesus was really worried about whether Peter was going to be offended by being called the devil. Because listen, you know, you, you can talk to a friend for a really, 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 really long time without calling, the, calling him the devil, right? But, but Jesus reveals in that moment that his appetite for intimacy and his appetite, his need for friendship does not place him in a position of such, such bondage that he must compromise on truth. The friendship is real, in other words. All right, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 5, that's the transfiguration. I'm not going to read any of that one tonight just for the sake of time, but I'll just make a couple of comments about it. Most of you know the story. Jesus uh, goes up with, uh, with Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and and the, he's transfigured, and and, uh, and Elijah and Moses show up there, and it's in, and on the heels of this transfiguration, this great moment of powerful intimacy, Peter, James, and John alone with Jesus on the mountain, they're allowed to see this great revelation, 
And in, that, in response, Peter rushed in and he says something that's just goofy. He, he says, we're going we're gonna to build three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, now that's goofy. We understand that that's goofy and that wasn't what needed to happen. But that's not the point I'm trying to make tonight. What I want to point out in this is the point is the fact that he said it. The point that he said it. What, what, what is it? What does that tell us about Peter? We know what it tells us about Peter because we've read the story, but what does it tell us about Jesus? Well, what it tells me that Peter just came out and blurted that. Well, for one, it tells me enough about Peter to know that he was always, always just blurting something out, right? But, but it tells us that Peter perceives of, of Jesus as being approachable. You know, it tells us that Peter was able to express the, the impetuous emotion of his heart at a moment of huge supernatural revelation and know that Jesus is going to hear him. He, he may not have seemed approachable to people that were sort of on the edge of the crowd, but Peter felt that Jesus was the kind of friend to whom he could just pour out his heart in a sudden burst of enthusiasm. Lord, this is so great. This is so awesome for us to be here. Let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, he wouldn't have done that if he, if he felt that Jesus was distant, aloof, or unapproachable. He wouldn't even have suggested that. He would have said, oh, I better keep, keep my mouth shut here because, you know, I don't want to get snapped at again. But that's not what he felt. He felt like he could say even the most impetuous thing to Jesus in the moment. Let's look at just one other with Peter and then we'll move on. Mark chapter 16, verse 7. I'm going to read this one. This is right after the resurrection. Mark 16, 7 says this. And I, I love this so much. It says, but go, Jesus is speaking. He says, but go, tell his disciples, or excuse me, an angel is speaking. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, that tells us several things. First, it tells us that Jesus, having seen Peter for what he was, his, his weakness, his flesh, fleshiness, his sleeping in the Garden of Gethsemane when he should have been praying, his denial of Christ, his remorse, his, his wavering faith, with all of that, having seen Peter for what he was, he still saw Peter as his friend. He still saw him as a friend. Furthermore, he preserved Peter for what he could be rather than for what he was in the moment. In other words, he did not den deny Peter's weakness. Indeed, the truth is he actually gave him up to his weakness. Jesus said to him, you will deny me. Now, now he could have said, he could have said differently. He could have said, hey, if you even start to deny me, Peter, you're going to go instantly dumb. You won't be able to speak another word the rest of your life. I mean, didn't Jesus have the power to do that if that's what he wanted to do? But, but Jesus said, I, I know what you're going to do. You're going to deny me, Peter. Peter said, no, no, Lord. Now these others, they may deny you. I don't know about them. They're a little wishy-washy. They may deny you, but I'll go all the way to the cross. I'm, I'll die with you, Jesus. And Jesus is like, oh, yeah, right, right. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, you've got a bulldog mouth and a chihuahua's bite. That's what you've got. You, you do this over and over and over again. You stand up when you should sit down. You laugh in the wrong places. You're, you talk when you should be quiet. You're full of promise, but you never deliver. You will deny me. 
In fact, you're going to do it before the sun comes up. You'll, you'll do it before the rooster crows three times. You're going to deny, deny me three times before that happens. No, Lord, no. He says, oh, Peter. And, and then he just let him do it. He, 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 in other words, he gave Peter the same thing he gave Judas. Enough rope to hang himself with. The freedom to make the choice. However, he also knew who Peter would be on the other side of Pentecost. He, he said, go tell the disciples and Peter. Knowing that Peter is going to be carrying this extra weight of making all these braggadocious claims. I'll go all the way to death with you, Jesus. I'll never deny you. Then he did it three times. Now Jesus is, is, is raised from the dead and he's going to show up. And he knows Peter's going to be carrying a, uh, uh, just a, a boatload of guilt and shame. And he says to him, I want you to make sure you tell Peter. Tell all the disciples, but make sure I mention that you mention that I mentioned Peter by name. Tell him. I still want him to meet me. I haven't given up on you, Peter. It's still going to be all right. Now, now uh, more, more quickly, we're going to deal with James and John. I just want to touch on a couple of places where they show up. One is where we started, James chapter 3, or not James, Mark chapter 3, uh, where we began with Peter. But in verse 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which is sons of thunder, which it is actually, it's kind of interesting here that he uses the Aramaic word Boanerges, and then he translates it for the Gentile readership rather than just giving them the, the, uh, the Greek translation. But, and it does translate as sons of thunder, but what I, I kind of like this. It could also be translated as the thunderbolts, which is kind of cool, you know? And so, again, here we see the tendency of Jesus to stick people with these nicknames. It's, it's kind of a, you know, fond, little, intimate joke. I mean, is, isn't that a bonding process for little boys everywhere? You know, they get up in a clubhouse and pull up the rope ladder behind them. They stick the sign out that says, no girls allowed. And then they choose nicknames. And, I mean, is any, any guys here remember doing things like that or in, you have the courage to, to actually admit it? you remember those things? And it's just a bonding moment. And it, sometimes the nicknames are not even flattering. You know, often they're not. Uh, like uh, if you find any, any little group of boys playing football somewhere on a the field, one of them's probably going to be called something like Porky or Chubbs or something like that. And another one's going to be called Slim or Skinny. Now, I never said they were creative. I just said the boys were, were intimate in that way. But, but there are always going to be those kinds of things. So Jesus, in a way, is just following this time-honored tradition of male bonding. He said, but he says to them, and I like this, he says to them, you guys are not going to be called James and John anymore. You're going to be called the Thunderbolts. This is how I picture it. And James and John, they're, they're like, wow, what a cool nickname. Peter, he got the rock. Ha! That's nothing. We're the thunderbolts. Now, what we don't know is exactly what Jesus meant by it. And I suspect James and John didn't really know either. Uh, let's think a minute who these guys were. Peter, James, and John were, were three professional fishermen uh, who were from the roughest part of Israel. Now, now, maybe they were called the sons of thunder because he knew they were going to be used 
like God's thunderbolts. Maybe that's why. Maybe they were called the sons of thunder because if you'll remember later on, it was James and John who said, uh, Lord, let's call down fire on them. Maybe that was it. Maybe Jesus said, man, you guys, you, got, you get mad so easy, just like that. You're just like thunderclouds ready to just roll in and just destroy a whole city. Or maybe it was just that they, they talked loudly and they laughed loudly. I don't know. Everybody has a friend or, or who, when he or she gets tickled, laughs louder than anybody else, you know, right? You know, everybody's got a friend like this. Some of you are thinking of that person right now. And every time you're with them, if you're like me, you, 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 want to, you try to think of something funny to say so that you can frighten the people at the back of the restaurant. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And so if James and John laughed and talked really loudly, no wonder Jesus named them the sons of thunder. Again, it's, it's just an interesting little insight into Jesus' intimacy with his closest friends, this fond little habit of nicknaming people. And more than that, tells you something about their level of love for him that they were willing to stand for. They were willing to accept that. Um, you don't need to look this up, but in chapter 5, verse 37, and also chapter 1, verse 29, uh, in, in the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, and the healing of, of Jairus's daughter. Both times, Jesus includes in the healing scene, Peter, James, and John in sort of a living uh, laboratory of ministry and healing. And he, he, what it tells me is that he saw, and this is a really, really good thing for us to learn, especially if you're in any kind of leadership. Well, I should say for all of us to learn because the truth is every one of us is in some kind of, some level of leadership. Because leadership is, in its essence, its influence. There is somebody that you influence. So you have a level of leadership somewhere, even if it's with just one person. But Jesus saw his friends, friendships, as an opportunity not just to satisfy his own need for per personal intimacy, but as an opportunity to teach ministry. He said I, he could have gone in that room and done it all by himself. But he said, you know, I'm gonna, I need to take Peter, James, and John in here with me. They need to be part of this. They need to see this, not just so that they can see it and say, wow, what did we see? But so that they can, they can understand that God can use them and the Father can use them in the same way. When the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost that, that, that I can do the same thing through them. I want them to be here to be part of this. And it was a teaching, teaching moment for them. We, we see that James and John are sectarian in Mark chapter 9, verse 38. What I mean by that is there's this moment in time where they, 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 they see somebody and they say to Jesus, hey, there's somebody over there that's preaching about you and we don't know him. He's not one of us. Command him to stop. And Jesus said, y you know, James and John, not everybody in the whole world is in the assemblies of God. Come on, now just calm down. You know, that's just my paraphrase, more or less, of Mark 9, 38. We also see that James and John were ambitious. Uh, in, in Mark 10, 35 and 41, we also know from other places that not only were they ambitious, but their mother was ambitious for them. But that's a whole different story. But, but, uh, but James and John asked Jesus if they could have thrones on the right and left side of Jesus. So they were ambitious. And we also see that James and John, just like Peter, were weak in the flesh because they fell asleep when Jesus took them to the garden to pray. And Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but what? The flesh is weak. So they were weak in the flesh. But we also see 
just like with Peter, that Jesus included them in the most intimate, in his most intimate circle of friends. What does that tell us? I love this. It tells us that Jesus does not see us nor expect us to be finished products at any point on the time continuum. He does not expect me to have arrived. Even after all these years that I've walked with him, he does not look at me and say, <clears throat> you should have this by now, Hoskins. What's your problem? He still calls me friend. He never rejects me. He still keeps moving me forward. He, he has enough love for me that he tells me the truth. But he never gives up on me. He never gives up on me. I, I mean, does that comfort anybody but me? You know, Jamie Buckingham, who was, who was uh, uh, traveling in a, he was traveling in a remote area of Africa one time, many, many years ago. And as he and his group were, were, were rounding this curve on this isolated trail, as they came around this sharp curve, they met a man standing there with a spear in his hand who, who was stark naked. I mean, just stark naked, except, except for the fact that he had a t-shirt on, which said in English, Please be patient with me. God's not finished yet. <laughs> Isn't that funny? <laughs> I don't, I don't, now, I don't, I don't know this, friend, but I, I'm not telling you I've had any kind of revelation from God, but I just had this feeling that, that there are times when the angels get together in some back room of, of heaven and they say, man, I was, I was just on earth. And let me tell you something really funny. I just saw a guy on earth and, 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 and he was preaching a sermon about Jesus and he like really knows nothing. You see, to the angels, we look like stark naked savages, but we have this t-shirt on that says, please be patient, God's not finished with me yet. I mean, listen, we know Jesus is the pre-existent, co-eternal word of God, and he sees, these, uh, sees people with their pettiness and their selfishness and their ambition and their tendency to sectarianism and their weakness in the flesh. And he can still, just like James and John, he, 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 he could still be close, intimate friends with them for three years while he walked this earth. What a magnificent man he was. He was not afraid of intimacy, but he established an intimacy that was free to challenge and free to expose what needed to be exposed. He was a transformer. Uh, intimacy with him changed lives. It still does. The closer people got to him, the more they changed. He changed them. His intimacy was constantly teaching and motivating and changing. Now, now I have just a few minutes left. I want to deal with the two ladies involved, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. They're hardly mentioned at all in the Gospel of Mark. However, having, having dealt with uh, intimate relationships so superficially in the Gospel, the fact that Mark chooses to give us even one window on these two women reveals that in, in the scope of things that we see from the other Gospels, that Jesus must have been very close to them. So what do we find? Let's, let's deal first of all with Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. She, she's only mentioned once in all of the Gospel of Mark, and that's in Mark chapter 14, verses 3 through 9. We're not going to read the, 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 that passage tonight for the sake of time, but it, it's the story. You'll know the story. It's the story of when Mary anointed Jesus. And then the disciples, they were all upset over it, particularly Judas. We know later 
We found out later why Judas, because in another gospel we're told he was upset because he was the keeper of the treasury and he was, he was helping himself to the treasury. So uh, he was upset about that. But what do we see about Mary in this story? We see that, that Mary was uh, worshipful, unashamed, spontaneously, and, and utterly undistracted. She, she was so focused on Jesus that, that she didn't even know anybody else was in the room. And she, and she wasn't showing off. Have you ever known somebody that shows off with their spirituality? They just want to make sure everybody sees how spiritual they are. But I don't believe for a moment that Mary sat outside the room and, and said, boy, this is going to look really spiritual. Because if she had done that, Jesus would have known that. Jesus would have rebuked that. Right? Jesus was never confused about what was on the inside of a person by what he saw on the outside. He, he knew what was on the inside. And so her heart was clean. Her heart was pure. And she just rushed in before him and showed spontaneous, undistracted, focused joy in Jesus. And what do we see in Jesus? Well, we see, and this is so unusual in their culture during their, their time. We see that Jesus, above every man that has ever lived, was able to be sensitive to the needs of women without threatening them. Here is a maiden lady who lives with her maiden sister and her unmarried brother. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it tells me maybe this is not the most attractive family that's ever lived. <laughs> I mean, I know that's not the nice thing to say, but... but uh, in first century uh, Jerusalem, two unmarried ladies living with their unmarried brother. Perhaps, maybe, this girl was not, may not have been the answer to some young boy's dream. Is all I'm saying. She dashes in, begins to throw herself literally at Jesus' feet in a burst of unfettered delight, actually showering affection on his person with this perfume. And Jesus is oblivious to everybody else in the room. He is sensitive to her. He affirms her. He sees her for what she is. Everybody else sees the awkwardness of the action, you know, because if you were in that room and it was like all of a sudden she comes running in and starts doing this, you're like, uh, well, what do we do? Should we, uh, should we get perfume? Should we, what? It's just an awkward moment, right? Everybody else just sees the outward appearance, but Jesus sees the inward reality of her spirit, of who she is. That's also the reason that Jesus was able to relate so well to Mary Magdalene. And I'm going to close with her. To, to whom did Jesus appear first after the resurrection? Mary Magdalene. Mark only says this, Mark 16, 9. This is from the New Living Translation. After, after Jesus rose from the dead early on Sunday morning, the first person who saw him was Mary Magdalene, the woman from whom he had cast out Seven demons. And that's the only time she's mentioned in the entire Gospel of Mark. Jesus appeared first unto Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. Here is a delivered, formerly demonized ex-prostitute, alone in, in a cemetery, and, and the resurrected Lord, the God of the ages, appears to her out of all the people he could have chosen. 
Thought about that? I mean, if, if, it, if it had been you, if you had been Jesus, who would you appear to first? I don't know about you, but I, I can tell you who I would have appeared to first. Caiaphas, the high priest. I'd have been like, surprise! <laughs> Boy, have I got a surprise for you, buddy. You know, I mean, that's what I would have done. Then I'd be, from there, I'd been, I, I would have headed over to the house of the Roman governor, you know, rattled his cage a little bit. Hey, hey, you washed your hands. Guess what, buddy, you know? Then I would have been down to the guardhouse. Hi! I mean, it would have been terror everywhere, right? But Jesus is not trying to wreak vengeance. Again, absolutely oblivious to the situation, oblivious to the need of his own reputation or anything else, Jesus appears alone in private to an ex-prostitute out of whom he's cast seven demons. Why her? Now, now lay aside from your mind any of the wicked, blasphemous, wretched teaching that has become so popular in recent years that Mary Magdalene and Jesus were romantically involved. That's wicked. That is not implied anywhere in any, any scripture. The closest we can get to that is that they were involved in the eternal romance of a sinner with the eternal lover of her soul. That's it. Jesus loved Mary Magdalene. And the fact that he could be with her in an up-close intimate relationship that was unthreatening to him and unthreatening to her that gives us a rare insight into Jesus that Jesus could be alone up close with a woman who in the first part of her life had saturated her life with sin and had learned every conceivable conceivable way to appeal to a man's flesh and now she's trying to appeal to his spirit she, she is, think about this, she is experiencing in Jesus perhaps the first man ever in her life that is not really attracted to her physically. And she is wowed because he loves her, her spirit, who she is. The first man where there's not even a spark of interest, their eyes meet and she feels nothing but holiness. She's in love with Jesus in the purest, most holy way. I'll tell you something. Think, think about it for a moment. Wouldn't it be a, bit, a little bit threatening to you? Wouldn't it bother you just a wee bit if you found out that the person in the con this congregation with whom I am the closest as a personal friend was an ex-prostitute? Talking about me as your pastor. If you found out that your pastor's closest personal friend, apart from his wife, was an ex-prostitute, would, would that bother you? And, and, you know, I mean, I think, let's just say there, there might be a board meeting, like before dawn. You know what I'm saying? And, and maybe that's right, because you, you want to make sure that everything is good, everything is right, everything is holy, uh, you know. But, and, but, but, but what I'm saying is, what, what does it tell us about Jesus, that he's willing to meet this ex-prostitute all by herself in the cemetery, this woman who's had seven demons cast out of her, you know that there's still people who, who remember her old reputation. Well, it tells us that Jesus was absolutely secure in who he was. Absolutely secure. And the more secure you are in who you are, the less threatened you are in relationship with those who are different than you. 
He'll find it in a second. <laughs> He's looking. I'm going to say it again here because everybody's listening in the ringer. So I'm going to say it again. The more secure you are in who you are, the less threatened you are in relationship with those that are different than you. The more insecure you are, the more you need everybody else to be like you. Jesus is the most secure man that ever lived. All alone, early on a Sunday morning in the cemetery, he appears to an ex-prostitute who had, who had been delivered from seven demons and says, Mary, it's me. Wow. I tell you, nobody ever cared for me like Jesus. I'm, I'm going to close with this. There, there's a song sung by Stephanie Gretzinger. It's, it's become over the last couple years at least sort of an anchor song. I don't know that's what I call it. You ever have those, those songs that just in a certain moment in your life, certain season in your life that the Lord brings into your, into your life and then you, it just sort of becomes an anchor for you? Um, this is one of those songs. and It's called No One Ever Cared For Me Like Jesus. And it's, it's, it, some of you are like, I, I, there's an older song called the same thing, but it's a different song. I love that song too. But, but this one, I, w- I just want you to hear these lyrics. If my heart could tell a story, if my life could sing a song, if I have a testimony, if I have anything at all, no one ever cared for me like Jesus. His faithful hand has held me all this way. And when I'm old and gray and all my days are numbered on the earth, let it be known in you alone. My joy was found. Then this verse really gets me. Let my children tell their children. Let this be their memory. That all my treasure was in heaven. And you were everything to me. No one ever cared for me like Jesus. His faithful hand has held me all this way. And when I'm old and gray and all my days are numbered on the earth, let it be known in you alone, my joy was found. I found my joy. Intimacy with Jesus, even in my sin, even in my, in, as the unfinished, awkward, poor product that I am. Intimacy with Jesus is the sweetest thing in my life. That's what I learned from these friendships, from these close relationships. That's what I long for. Bow your head, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much. Thank you for for preserving these stories, for preserving the gospel. And as we read this gospel of Mark, and we we talk about all of these, these closest friends, Lord, It reminds me of the fact that you're no respecter of persons, that you don't love Peter or James or John or Mary Magdalene or Mary, the the sister of Lazarus and Martha, any more than you love me, and that the same intimacy that they had with you, that's what you want for me. And God, I thank you for loving me that way, even even though I didn't deserve it and still don't deserve it.
thank you for loving me. And that is my story. There is no one has ever cared for me like you. And when this is all said and done, Lord, I just pray that my life would be a reflection of your beauty. I pray, God, that you would draw all of us into that close, intimate, personal relationship with you that you, you want for us. And that in so doing, as you draw us into intimacy, just like you did with all of these men and women that we've talked about and with, with countless numbers of people throughout history, as you draw us into intimacy, you will change us. And I thank you for that. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.